Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, following up on just a really powerful yet difficult and challenging initial verses of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you approach the Lord. Be careful when you come into the place of worship. Be careful as you draw near to listen. It's funny, again, as I stated a couple of times already, this book of Ecclesiastes has proven to be a profitable yet challenging study. It's opened up our eyes to things that perhaps we never saw in the book of Ecclesiastes. It reminds us of the things that matter most, and perhaps what it does is it disarms us as well when we realize that as smart as we think we are and as right as we think we get our theology, the same life that was struggled with by the writer, the Koheleth, this convener of the assembly, this dispenser of wisdom are the same things that we deal with on a regular basis. That's why it resonates with us. It's life. It's our life. It's this life until the next life becomes a reality. But in chapter 5, as he gives such clarity and warning about worship, he then kind of transitions and speaks to the vanity of wealth and honor by dealing with some really difficult matters when it comes to oppression, and I believe then tying some of his comments to that oppression and the desires of man's heart. To be honest with you, many of the verses in the end of chapter 5 in the book of Ecclesiastes are challenging verses. The commentators are all over the place in their understanding of these verses as they struggle to make sense out of it, we don't have the clarity necessarily that we want to have, the, the precision that we can often bring to the Scriptures and some of the epistles, some of the historic or canonical books of the Scripture, isn't here in Ecclesiastes. We are left to, to try and decipher what, what this, this writer is wrestling with in his own heart and in his own mind. And in order to truly grasp what he's saying, we have to look at this from a foundational perspective. What has he already said? What has he already taught us? What have we already learned? And how do we bring that to the current text? How does that work in our lives and in the current lives in which we live? Well, I do believe that some of the things that we reflected on in chapter 5 are critical for our reflection when we look at the vanity of riches. One of the things that we looked at was a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy, where again, the Israelites were reminded, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? That's what he speaks of in the initial verses of chapter 5. When you come into the house of God, know that He is in heaven and you're not. He is a glorious, holy, transcendent God. You must be careful how you approach Him, and you must fear Him for who He is and what He does and what He represents. And then as you leave that house of God, you're to walk in all of His ways. You're to love Him, 
And you're to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for good. These are commands that the writer of Ecclesiastes knew well. Now, how to flesh that out, how to, how to live that out in life under the sun and the futility of, of the few short years that God gives us escaped him. And he decided to approach this, this reality of life and figure it out on his own terms in his own way. And we see him wrestling with his thoughts and then communicating those thoughts at the end of his wrestling to us through the text of Ecclesiastes. And he writes in several different ways, and he goes back and forth between those ways. And, and sometimes he writes as a cynic, a pessimist, saying, none of this makes sense. It doesn't matter. What's the point? And then other times he, he writes in a hedonistic kind of way, there is no point, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Just live it up. It doesn't really matter in the end. And then in more lucid moments, he says, but it does matter. It has to matter. And it's almost as if he's asking us the question, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Almost that nihilistic, not a second of your life means anything. I don't believe for a second that that's what he's trying to communicate. I think what he's saying is that is the ultimate conclusion at the exclusion of God. None of this matters. And he has this prickly conscience who's, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the the Scriptures, pokes and prods him and gets him to the place where he says, but it has to matter. It has to. And this is where he brings us this morning. It matters. So when you come into the house of God, be quick to hear, okay, Lord, what are you going to say to us? What is it that we need to learn today. Now, interestingly, he changes from our vows of obedience and and our worship of of reverence and fear, and he returns to the theme of chapter 4 and goes back to oppression. Look what he says in verse 8, and we'll read down through the end of this chapter. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at that matter. For the high official is watched over by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Seems like he transitions, but I believe he is addressing things in the same manner. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income this also was vanity. And when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. This also is a grievous evil. 
But just as he came, he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I told you it's a difficult text. What in the world is he talking about? As you reflect upon the lessons already learned, you're going to find out that it's not as difficult as it might appear. And as we put it all together, we begin to see his, his heart. Remember where we've been in this study. He's king over Israel in Jerusalem. He'd accomplished more than any before him had ever accomplished. He had all of the resources necessary to make life work. No one before him in Jerusalem had become who he was, not in notoriety, not in fame, not in power, not in influence, not in wealth. He was at the top of the heap, at the top of his game, the pinnacle of all of culture. And then he looked around in a lucid moment and said, but none of it seems to matter. There seems to be a vanity or an emptiness to all of this. It's not what I was looking for. I found it, but it's not what I was looking for. Do you ever feel that way in life? You pursue and you pursue and you pursue, and you find it, and you say, well, that wasn't what I was looking for. There's got to be something more. Well, that's where he is. And as he talks about that, he talks numerous times about just enjoying the simple things in life. And, and then he goes into to chapter 3, and he talks about the times and the seasons of life. And maybe he's trying to convince himself that, that even when he's on the top of the pinnacle or even when he's wondering what life is all about, there is a God who, who knows the answers to all of that. He hasn't shared them with us, but there's a God who knows He's appointed those times, and he doesn't waste a single blessing nor a single sorrow. He's, he's in charge. And ultimately, he says, I have to believe that he makes all things beautiful in their own time. Remember chapter 3? I have to believe that he's weaving this all together for his glory and somehow my good. But then he returns and says, but I don't see any good in it. doesn't make any sense to me. What, what's, what's going on? What, what, what is happening here? And as he plays this out in his mind and he shares this with his audience and says that he's seen the business under the sun and, and God must be in charge, that he must rest in his sovereignty, verse 14 of chapter 3, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added or nothing taken from it. God has done it, and that teaches us to fear before him. And then, that thought's gone again. And he goes back to his old ways, and he says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun, that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. And he goes back to say, what's the point? 
You see how he goes back and forth and forth and back, wrestling in his mind, trying to find out the realities of life? He's just being honest. In fact, I believe the book resonates with all of us because that's an honest glimpse of life. Just when we feel we've mastered it, someone pulls the route out from under us. Just when we think we have a grasp on reality, we're distracted by something shiny. Ever, ever notice that? Just when we think we have it all figured out, there's a curve and we, we begin to wonder, what's the point? What is, what is the point of this anyhow? Well, in chapter 4, he says, again, I saw all of the oppressions done under the sun. It seems to be a constant theme there. And then he gets to verse 8, and he brings it up again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. What did you expect? What does he want us to know? Well, I pray that we do justice to the text and God reveals something to all of us this morning. Father, open our eyes and allow us to see Take a difficult text and simplify it as we apply it in our own lives. Teach us the fear of God. Teach us how to revel and enjoy the little things. Remind us that we don't have to have it all figured out because you do. Show us your glory. Make sense of this life. Give us a heart toward you. As the writer, the text unveils his struggles. We see so many of those struggles in ourselves and so much reality about life. Reveal to us the essence of his challenges and struggles which, if we're honest, are ours. Give us the answers to the deepest questions in life. Who am I and where am I going? Remind us that it is never found under the sun. Show us your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember where in chapter 1, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Things are cyclical in life. They just kind of spin round and round, and it's the same old, same old, and there's nothing new under the sun, and it seems like nothing changes. It is almost as if the writer of Ecclesiastes took a glimpse into the political, cultural atmosphere of our time and said, I told you so. Look what he says in verse 8. If you see in a province, if you see in a locale or a location that is overseen by magistrates and judges and, and leaders and kings, if you see in a providence somewhere that the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, now he's not saying if, he's saying when. He is saying it's everywhere. Just look around. The world is broken and you see oppression, and you see injustice, and you see a lack of righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Why are you surprised at that? It's almost as if he's saying, didn't I tell you that there's nothing new under the sun? Now remember, this is critically important, he's also speaking as a king. He's also speaking as one responsible for those under his domain in the province and 
he has a, an insight and an understanding to what's going on that most of us don't know and will never see. So if he says, listen, if you see oppression, if you see uh, the poor being maligned, remember, we, we just sang about those who, who are weak and discarded, those who are hopeless and wounded in their need. We just sang about the least of the culture and celebrated that God is their defender. That's really important to keep in mind as you look at this text. So he says, why are you so surprised at the corruption in the world under the sun, the corruption in a world that celebrates injustice and and lacks justice? Why are you surprised that there is no righteousness under the sun? Don't be amazed at any of this, for the high official is watched over by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them, but this is again, or this is gain for a land in every way, the king committed to cultivating fields. Uh, verse 9 in particular has perplexed commentators from the beginning. What is he, what is he saying? Spent uh, yesterday at a conference on critical race theory um, from two individuals who have made it a point and purpose in their lives over this last couple of years since the death of George Floyd to investigate all of the injustice and oppression, and racial conflict in our culture, and they happen to be two black men who aren't accepted in the black community for their beliefs on some of this, and they kind of unpackage this in, in a really weird way. Isn't it amazing how God fits things together? Now, this conference was canceled in July and rescheduled to August. I have to wonder, did God know I was going to reflect on Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 today? And He took me to that conference to remind me, what did you expect under the sun from these godless leaders? What, what did you think was going to happen? Some of us have been taught in our, in our Western civilization to, to celebrate as patriots this great land of freedom. Well, guess what? We're just as oppressed as any other people. Who's doing the oppressing? You're talking about high officials, politicians and bureaucrats and cultural elites who are in charge of, of, of everything. He said, why are you amazed that they're not bringing about justice and, and, and righteousness? He says, and there are higher ones over them and even higher over them. And what is, what is he saying? Well, verse 1 again of chapter 4, again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power Oh, there's a key into the people that he's talking about. The the oppressors that he's singling out in verse 8 are those who have power. And because they hold the power over those who are oppressed, there is no one to comfort them. And that is one of the great injustices. The writer, if indeed it's Solomon, is saying, listen, the very people who are in charge given over to protect you in the providence and bring about righteousness and justice are the ones that you can't depend upon. That's what he's saying in the text. Oh, there you go to meddling again, Pastor Jim. You take it up with God. Read the verse. These are people in control. These are people with the power. These are people with the influence. These are the people who control everything. So when there is injustice and when there is oppression… Certainly, 
little people can be just as guilty, but God sets up governments. He ordains that sphere of authority to do what? To punish the evildoers and to reward those who do well, but that's not the way the world functions, is it? Solomon says, surprise, surprise. What did you think was going to happen under the sun? Well, sinful people who have excluded God, and guess what? He's an authority at that because he purposed to sort out life under the sun. I'll call you if I need you, God. I'm going to figure this out. What did you expect was going to happen? That's what he says. That's what he says in the text. Everywhere I look, there's a perversion of justice. Everywhere I look, I realize that I'm in a fallen world. Everywhere I look, there's dishonest bureaucracy and and everyone's covering for each other, and, and it seems like the people in charge are always in charge no matter what happens in an election. Ever notice that? The very essence of critical race theory and the division of a culture, the confusion over sexuality, the confusion over marriage. And the sinister approach to turn everybody against each other is to accumulate more power and more control and more position and more money. So he says in verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. They're going to enrich themselves off of you. That's the corruptness of a government without God. He says in chapter 3, he sees the injustice about one person taking advantage of another. He says in chapter 4, he sees the injustice about one oppressed group being oppressed by another oppressed group. And now in chapter 5, he takes it a step further and he says, but the buck stops somewhere. And the people who are overseeing the province, the people who are in charge, the people who have been commissioned by God not to be feared, but to punish evil and to reward good, are not doing that. Under their kingdom, there is oppression. And under their kingdom, there is injustice. Why? are you so surprised? And then he almost says, and by the way, when you rise up against them, they're going to protect each other. And somehow, you're going to be the bad guy. That's our life. It's the political and cultural environment of today. Isn't it funny? There is nothing new under the sun And those in power, in order to keep their power and enhance their life, has to continue to take advantage of the people cultivating the fields. (laughs) Massive spending and more taxes. You say, well, you're meddling. No. Listen carefully. One of the grave errors of evangelicalism was when they put their hope in the religious right in some sanctified America, believing that we're a theocracy and God's going to… No, 
We live in a world of sinful people, and the people with the power want to keep the power, and they're going to do it any way possible through oppression and injustice because they can't give up the control. No, I'm not here to tell you that all of this is deliberate, but I will tell you much of it is. Some of it is just neglectful. They don't understand real life. They live in a fantasy world, a limousine kind of culture. But I will tell you that the consequence of their decision-making has brought great grievance and oppression and harm to the people. Psalmist says, what did you expect by putting your confidence in earthly powers? What did, what did you think was going to happen? How did you think this was going to play out after all? Some of you say this makes me unpatriotic. So be it. My confidence isn't in America. It's in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Things are horribly broken. In every institution under the sun. And it's because of us and our sinfulness. You know how people acquire power? Because they promise us things and we believe them. So we give them the power. They never seem to deliver. That's what he says in the text here. They just get more and more and more and more and more. To such a degree where we are told you didn't do that. The government did it for you. And you scratch your head and say, well, how, how did that happen? What has the government done for? This is what the king is struggling with. So he says, there's oppression, and here's the key. There's oppression and injustice on every level of the culture, man against man, community against community, the elites against the rest of us. What did you expect in a sinful world? Now, in some sense, that might be depressing, but in another sense, it's freeing. Yeah, that's a good question. What was I expecting? (laughs) What, what, What? What did I expect from sinful men? Far too much. Far too much. Now, take it back to the beginning. So, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Why? Because He's the one in heaven, and the rest of you, even these magistrates, are on earth. So, guard your steps. It all fits. Perfect. Who would have thought you could pluck a word or two words out of Ecclesiastes chapter 8? that are the sum total of the culture in which we live, and realize this was written so long ago. Well, he already told us that. You weren't paying attention. There's nothing new under the sun. See how it all matters that we understand everything that he's taught us up to this point in time? The problems with our culture is the elites, the intellectual elites, the educational elites, the, the Hollywood elites, the political elites, and The real issue is the condition of the human heart. And here's a man blessed with amazing wisdom from God who should have been different than everybody else. (laughs) Somehow his vision of life just clouded his judgment, and I made me great vineyards, and I planted me great, great this, and I did this, and I did this, and in his lofty position, somehow God got drowned out. If it can happen to him, it can happen to every single one of you, and it does sometimes, doesn't it? 
the government and our leaders are not our Savior. That is only a place reserved for King Jesus. Better get that straight. We are not living in the land of Oz. We are living in the land of oppression and injustice. What did you expect in a sinful world? What did you expect after all? It's turning our attention back to the worship and the fear and the transcendence of God and the realities of life under the sun and saying, what a mess. What a mess. Those who acquire wealth and honor and power and authority have an insatiable desire for wealth and power and honor and authority. Did you ever see how that works? Just when you're about to applaud taking on the government, right? He says, well, let's think about you for a second. And he changes gears a little bit. Now he's going to meddle again. And he says in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. He's speaking about those who are in control and in power, but I believe he's speaking about every single one of us as well. And he's giving us a, a simple proverb, a bit of wisdom. If you love money, if you are driven by the love of money, money will never satisfy you because you need more and more and more. And if you are driven by a love for wealth and a love for an increased income, you need more and more and more. It's never going to be enough. This also is vanity. Trempert Longman, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says the implication <coughs> is for those who set the acquisition of money as their highest goal in life have, have a never-ending task. When is it enough? It is never enough. You are driven by an insatiable sinful desire for more and more and more and more. Let me dissect this a little bit for you, particularly in the area of oppression. The poor of 2022 are not the poor of 1960. You look at, at the pursuit of wealth, even in America, and even of those who are, who are poor have all of the conveniences of life and all of the latest gadgets and all of the latest things. There's, there's no poor. This pursuit is an endless pursuit, and it just means we need more and more and more. And here's what it gets us. We trust the people promising us that they're going to give us more, and we give them the power and the influence and the control and the authority, and they consume it for themselves, and they forget about you. It's an evil, Solomon says. What an evil that is done under the sun. So who is he referring to for those who love money? Well, those magistrates who are in control, but I think he's referring to all of us as well. You say, I don't love money. I don't have any of it. That's not the same thing. You don't need to have money to love money. We want more, and we want more, and we want more, and we're all caught in this trap, every single one of us. That's why Ecclesiastes resonates with us. This is our life. <laughs> we want more. Not me, Pastor Jim. I am thoroughly content. Let's take a a walk through the parking lot. 
cars are a necessary evil. But we have them, sometimes two or three. The latest model with the latest gadgets and the reality of life is loving anything material, whether it be money or goods or wealth or income, is an emptiness. It never brings happiness. And then he expounds on that a little bit further. When goods increase, the more that you get, they increase who eat them. Now, now you're responsible to distribute those goods. And in essence, maybe he's talking about business owners. As you grow your business, you're dependent on laborers for that business. And then you have all this overhead to maintain that business. And when does this mess end? It, it never ends, this love of money. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What, what advantage is it to work so hard just to distribute it among so many? What's the point of all of this? He says, There's something very profound in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, for whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He said, you know, it's better probably to have nothing and to work until you're dog tired and drag yourself out of the field at the end of the day, and you have your meal, and you go to bed, and you sleep hard. But the wealthy have to worry about all their stuff and all their things and all their investments and everything that comes next. And they have a full stomach that won't let them sleep. He's not talking about indigestion. He's talking about the cares of life. The more you have, the more you have to manage. And here's a man who had more than any before him in Jerusalem. And he said, let me tell you what that's all about. That's a grievous evil. You say, well, I'd like to be blessed with a little grievous evil. I'll just see, because if I could get a little bit more, I wouldn't squander that. Oh, come on. Of course you would when you look at life under the sun. Of course you would. We all do when we don't guard our steps and understand the glorious nature of our God and the blessings that He's bestowed upon us. He's not talking about wealth being evil. He is talking about your motives. Don't ever forget that. And you can be dirt poor and love money and stuff. And you can listen to the whispers of those in charge who promise you the world. And you'll wake up again tomorrow and say, they did it again. They got more power, they got more influence, they got more control, and I got a handful of nothing. What's that all about? What did you expect was going to happen? That's what Solomon's saying. What did you expect? What happened? There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. It gets a little bit more specific in verse 13. He says, riches were kept by their owner to the hurt. So because of the fleeting nature of stuff and because of the lack of fulfillment of ever having enough because of your love for money and material possessions, he's saying this is a grievous evil. So when you amass these riches, you bury them in your yard somewhere, uh, you, you try and protect them, you try and keep them, but, but that again is to your hurt. Listen to some of the things he says earlier in chapter 4. Again, I saw the vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, 
Yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Here's a person working like crazy. He has nothing to do with his money. And he asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What an unhappy business. This isn't bringing me any happiness. Just when you think he, he's lamenting the fact of heirs and passing on his wealth, remember what he says in chapter 1. Or I got to give all this stuff to people who I don't know are wise or fools. Probably fools, he says. What an empty, cyclical trap that, that, that I find myself in. And those riches, if you don't bury them and hoard them away and you use them, can be lost in a bad venture. You can lose it. Today's market, you can lose it in a bad business deal. And now you don't have it. When you are a father of a son, you have nothing to give. You have nothing in your hand. What is his point? His point is not that things are wrong. His point is not that money is wrong. His point is your motives about that thing is really where the problem lies. He's going to get to the punchline pretty soon. You don't have to be rich to love money and stuff. You don't have a lot. You don't need to have a lot to love stuff. And every one of us is trapped in Western civilization where we want just a little bit more, but nobody's happy. Did you ever notice that? Again, I'll remind you of what he says in verse 8. What did you expect? What did you expect? As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry it away in his hand. At the end of the day, no matter what you achieve, you will die. And there will be nothing in your hand when you pass from this life to the next, not one single thing. You can't take it with you. Isn't that what he said through this whole thing? Therefore, I hated my toil because I have to leave it to somebody else. My heart was given over to, to despair over all of my toil because the person who comes after me hasn't worked as hard as I've worked, and they won't appreciate what I'm passing on to them. What a great evil. Martin Luther once wrote, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. Whatever I've placed in the hands of God, that I still possess. That's what the writer is trying to communicate to us in the text. It is a grievous, grievous evil, verse 16. For just as this man came, he shall go. And if for all of his wealth, after all of his possessions, after everything that he put his whole life into, he walks away with a hand full of nothing. Juxtapose this against the man called Job in the Old Testament, who wakes up one morning to find that he has nothing left. He uses almost the same words. Naked came I into this world, and naked will I leave. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord, and in all of these things, Job sinned not against the Lord. You know why? Because he didn't put satisfaction of life or the pursuit of things under the sun as the most important thing. God was. And when it was gone, he was still okay. That's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, but he's saying it in a rather negative way, where Job said it in a rather positive way. It is a grievous evil. All of the effort, all of the trouble, all of the lack of sleep, all of the hurt, all of the broken relationships, and what am I left with? A handful of nothing. What's the point? The point is material wealth and possessions were never meant to satisfy the greatest longings of the soul and cannot answer the deepest questions of life. Who am I and where am I going? It will never answer those questions. Solomon is coming to that conclusion. For those who love money and possessions and build their life upon the next thing, money and possessions as an end in themselves are problematic in this life and impossible in the next life. The reality is it's a grievous evil. It's a fantasy. It's a false promise. And I would add, we've all been duped, every single one of us. See, that's offensive, Pastor Jim. I deal with it. We've all been duped. We've all been there. We all bought into this notion. We hate it when someone says, I told you so. Why are you amazed at this? In other words, Solomon said, I told you that would happen. He continues, Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this text, makes four observations. Money does not bring satisfaction with it. Possessions never bring security to those who trust them for it. Riches bring no peace, and wealth carries no guarantees. That's exactly what the writer is telling us. So he says, in a glimmer of hope, as he glances upward, behold, wait a second, wait a second, I've had an epiphany. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil. It's still a hard business, but to find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. This is your life. God has given it to you. Make the most of that opportunity and enjoy the little things. How are we doing with that? The little things. One of my favorite songs. I won't sing it. I won't even play it for you. It's Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. Sometimes I listen to it and I get angry. Wonderful world. Let me tell you what I see out there. And then I step back and I realize he's talking about the little things. This was a black man who grew up in the middle of a persecuting racist culture and was able to say, what a wonderful world. Maybe he knew some things that I didn't know. He learned, at least he sang about, the little things. 
Some believe that Solomon or the writers being cynical in verse 18, well, you live and then you die, so you might as well enjoy whatever you have. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, behold, hey, wait a second, something came to me. I realized something. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil. This is a gift from God. Now He looks at these leaders, He looks at the elites, and He says, now if indeed you have found your hope in God, if in fact you are living for all of the right reasons, God has chosen for whatever reason to bless you with all of these things, and you have realized that's a gift. I'm reminded of James. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Whatever your lot, are you thankful? Whatever you have, are you grateful? Wherever you are, are you content? What is your, what is your lot in life? God has given you the power to enjoy whatever you have as long as you accept that it is limited in this lifetime and you make the most of your opportunity, that is a particular and peculiar gift of God. And the cynics out there are saying, yeah, right. If this life is a gift from God, I'm a little disappointed. I've been there before. For those, a little bit of encouragement. If you're thinking you're living in a world where things are getting worse all of the time, cheer up. You'll be dead before it gets really bad. all about perspective. How do we start our study? Perspective. Solomon wanted to make life work on his terms under the sun. And he said, behold, never works out that way. Enjoy your life. Revel in the little things. Understand there's a transcendent God who has control of everything. And whatever he's given you, Make the most of that opportunity. He said, I don't have as much as the next guy. Do you want all the trouble that comes with that? He just, he just went down through that whole thing in his text. Be content where, wherever you might, you might be. For if you can find this place of rejoicing in whatever you do have and understand that life every day, in fact, is a gift, you will not much remember the days of his life be God because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You've got a good focus. You're you're on the right path, but there's going to be a lot of distractions. Try try and hang on to the joy in your heart and not be preoccupied with the things of, of life, because it's a dead end. And here we go. It's like a dog returning to its own vomit. We say, wow, that's a powerful message. And then we go out on Monday and say, Boy, I really like that new iPhone that's out right now. I wish I had what that guy had. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Let me ask you something. How do you define your life? And what is your heart preoccupied with today? Let's put it all together. If it's power, position, and influence, and wealth, and control, that's an illusion. You have none of those. You'll be sorely disappointed. But if I can look at life, say, you know what? There's food on the table. There's a roof over my head. 
has blessed me in little ways. And in the little things, there's plenty of reason to rejoice. Get a little glimpse of the joy that God has promised. Until the next shiny object crosses your path. <laughs> I'm reminded of Paul, a wretched man that I am. I, I, I thought I had this. Then I didn't. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is how this plays out. Remind you the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's almost like he's borrowing from chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, if you continue to read that text, then just a few verses later, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and stuff. And that was the dilemma for the writer. That was the issue that he was wrestling with. That is the point of what he shares with us, and his conclusion is brilliant. To whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, that is a gift from God. May you know that gift. May you be content in your heart. May you have a moment of behold. <laughs> behold. What a wonderful world. A gift from a gracious God. Make the most of every opportunity. Father, bless us. Encourage us, teach us over and over and over and over again with this reality. Accept our confession and our repentance. Straighten our mind and our desires. Protect us from the next shiny object. What do we expect? May we fear you. May we keep your commands and may we enjoy life as it's intended to be lived. For your glory alone, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?